sponsor StrongDM is secure infrastructure access for the modern stack. StrongDM proxies connections between your infrastructure and sysadmins, giving your IT team auditable, policy-driven, IAC-configurable access to whatever they need, wherever they are. Find out more at strongdm.com slash packetpushers. Welcome to Day 2 Cloud. We got an action-packed show today, I think. Don't we, Ned, here? We're talking about Pulumi. So if you like Terraform or maybe Ansible or Chef and you've spent time in those worlds, Pulumi is also in that world. And we dive into what Pulumi is all about, don't we, Ned? We sure do. And if you're thinking, oh, this is another infrastructure as code conversation, well, it's a little bit more than that because now we're talking about infrastructure as software. So if that's of interest to you, tune into this conversation with Maddie Stratton from Pulumi. Maddie Stratton, welcome to Day 2 Cloud. And uh, for the audience that doesn't know you yet, who are you and what do you do? Hi, that's a that's a great question. We'll keep it tight. Uh, my name is Maddie Stratton. Currently, I am a staff developer advocate at Pulumi. I've been in the DevOps space for a long time, and I've worked in ops for an even longer time. Okay, so working at Pulumi, and that is the focus of this show. So, in a sentence or two, give us the the what is Pulumi answer. So I always like, you've probably heard of infrastructure as code. So Pulumi can be considered an infrastructure as code tool. We call it a universal infrastructure as code. I like to think about it as infrastructure as software and really use Pulumi to build and deploy and manage your modern cloud applications. But the big kicker is you're using familiar languages, tools, and practices, right, that you already know. So in a very short sentence, it's like it's infrastructure's code using something like .NET or Java or Go instead of a domain-specific language. There's more to it than that, but that's sort of the, the overview. Right. Okay. So you, you brought up a new term, which is sure. software, and we like terms. We like defining them. Um, <laughs> and since you came up with it, or at least for the purposes of this podcast you did, would you like to define infrastructure as software for us? I, I would love to. I always like to say, I say, words are hard. Don't worry. I've got new words for you. Um, <laughs> so we can we can argue about them. Or as Andrew Clay Schaefer likes to say, who wants to fight about made up words, uh, the definition of made up words with me. So when I think about infrastructure as code, so I've been kicking around this space for a while. And, you know, I was a user of Puppet. I was in the Chef community for a long time. Then I went and I actually worked at Chef. I've, I've, I've tried pretty much almost every different way you can do infrastructure as code. And the thing that's interesting to me is quite a bit of what we call infrastructure as code is number one, it's not treating our infrastructure as code at all. It might be creating our infrastructure using some code. Uh, and that might be a pedantic difference, but I've always sort of thought about like versioning our infrastructure, like all those things, like applying it to our infra. So when we talk about infrastructure as software, because code is only part of software. Right. So if we're if we're creating software, yes, we write some code, but we test it. We put it through life cycles. We do a lot of we have APIs and integrations and all these other things and libraries, components that all come together. So when I think about infrastructure as software, it's like, how do we actually lay this down and use software engineering practices towards the deployment, the managing, the building of our infrastructure resources? So you're saying, yeah, okay. I, I think I understand the, the pedantic difference that you're making. Um, infrastructure as software in that context makes a lot of sense because infrastructure as code fails in as a definition and in that infrastructure isn't code. We're using code to manage it. So I, I think I get where you're going. 
when you were defining what Pulumi is, Maddie, you made the point that the, you know, the big kicker, the big thing here is you're using a language that you already know, some kind of a traditional programming language. Okay, so how is Pulumi different from an SDK then? Well, it is fundamentally at the end of the day, that is exactly what it is. This is an SDK, right? It is some type of a connection. So when we think about, so my, my colleague Lee Briggs uh, talks about this a lot about that when you think about an InfraCode tool, and you will hear me say, I will continually refer to this as an InfraCode tool because we do know that term. And I'm not definitely not here to be like, let's change the words we use. I do think words influence how we think about things. And there was a reason that when I worked at Chef, I didn't like calling them chef scripts. I called them chef recipes because a script is an ordered, you know, there's a, there's a thing to it anyway, but I don't care what you call a damn thing, you know, just do it right now. That said, when we think about an InfraCode tool, there's the authoring experience and the execution experience, right? So how do we create our definition of the infrastructure that we want? And then how is that? thing that I authored, executed and made to be true. Because in a lot of ways, if we think about it, InfraCode is very simple. At the end of the day, and that's how I always talk about it. I've been talking about this for forever. And people are like, it's complicated. It's hard. I'm like, you know what it is? It is a test and repair loop. Mm. Is the thing look like this? Yes. Cool. Mm. Do nothing. Does it not look like this? Fix it and move on with your life, right? That's all InfraCode is. Okay. Now we got 40 more minutes to talk about, I don't know, the Cubs or something, which by the way, terrible. Um, actually designated hitter in the National League, the worst. But so when we think about Pulumi as an SDK, fundamentally what we have here is we have SDKs for all of those languages that translate into the uh, declarative state. So you'll there's a lot of things that people in this space like to argue about, right? Again, argue about the definition of made-up words or real words that we apply a made-up definition to. Get a lot of declarative versus imperative. We used to like to talk about the word idempotent a lot, like we are mathematicians. Any <laughs> mathematician listens to config management nerds talk about idempotency, and they're like, but that's not actually what it means. Good job for messing that up. Uh, <laughs> but the thing is, you know, so, so a lot of times people will say, oh, well, Pulumi is not declarative because you're writing it using an imperative programming language. But what happens is, and the reason I bring this up is not to like get into this debate but to think about that authoring versus execution. So what we're doing is using various SDKs in the different programming languages, you're writing code, and that's generating basically a graph, right? It's generating a plan. It's generating a desired state in a declarative way, okay? So that's, you know, when we think about, when you say, how is it different than SDK? I guess to a certain point, my question is like, what do you mean by an SDK? Do you mean like the cloud providers APIs that you might consume directly? You know, is it because like there is, for example, there's the AWS CDK, the cloud developer kit, which is very similar. So fundamentally, they're all thinking around similar ways. And the thing is underneath the hood, that is 100% how this works. Because again, it's an SDK to talk to APIs, right? Right. And, and you've, you've placed some levels of abstraction between directly talking to that API with like the rest calls versus the declarative state. And there needs to be something imperative in there that's running that loop to talk to the APIs, get information, check that information. If it's wrong, set it to something else. And now we're taking it one level deeper. You have an imperative thing that you're writing that needs to get translated into a declarative thing. Some of the other solutions out there kind of skip that portion and they just go straight for declarative. I'm going to declare whether it's in YAML or some other DSL. But, you know, there's definitely some deficiencies 
with that approach as well. Was Pulumi designed as reaction to those existing DSL solutions? I think there's a couple things. So when I think about it, I want to give a little bit of history and I'm going to get some of it wrong, but hopefully maybe, you know, Joe Duffy, the creator of Pulumi is listening and will, will correct me later. So I was around from the very beginning of Pulumi, but I, I will give this, I'm going to answer your question, but I'm going to give a little bit of a, of a background. So it took me about a year to come to Pulumi. So when I first was interested in coming to Pulumi, I, other opportunities, things happened. Then I came around a year later and, but one of the things that was really important when I was first starting to talk to Plumi, I talked to a lot of people in the space that I know and asked their opinion and what did they think. And, and, and one person who's very well known in the config management space, I won't, I won't identify who it was, <laughs> said, look, and was, who was very familiar with what Plumi was trying to build is they said to me, look, Maddie, you need to find out what the big bet is because right now it looks like all this is, is trying to be a better Terraform. Is there room for a better Terraform? Absolutely. But is that what you want to be involved with? And he said, look, I know Joe. I know I know all the people involved. I know there's more to this. I just don't know what it is. So when I came around the second time is when I was talking to Joe Duffy, who's Pulumi's founder. And this was right before what, what we call our automation API was launched. And he was telling me about that. And I said, aha, this is what makes sense. So this sort of I think the idea has always been not just about write infra code using a general purpose programming language, like just because that's just like just layering programming language over Terraform or over whatever kind of thing. But how do we actually, and automation API was the beginnings of me saying, this is treating our infrastructure as code. And what that is without going too deep into it, because we could talk for 45 minutes about automation API is imagine you're writing an application in like a Flask application in Python, or you're writing a, a web portal or a CLI in Go, and you embed your infra code ability directly in the application, right? So it's not like it goes out and calls a, you know, does a Pulumi up or does whatever. You actually are able to interface with Pulumi itself as an API inside your software, which that's the real interesting stuff to me, and we're seeing people, people are building their infrastructure automation platforms inside their organizations using Pulumi as the core engine of that. But the people who are leveraging it don't actually have to know Pulumi. And there's, I, I will put it to you this way. A lot of the stuff to me when I look at Pulumi is I always say, this is what I always wanted Chef to be. So if you don't know Chef, Chef's big thing was Again, it was, it was, yeah, we can fight all day about what's a DSL. Yes, it was a DSL, but it was, it was, you were basically, when you're writing chef code, you're writing Ruby. So you have mm. all the, everything I'm telling you that Pulumi does, that was chef except only Ruby. So it was great as long as Ruby was what you wanted, but you could do things like write conditionals and loops and leverage Ruby's ecosystem and testing tools and IDEs and all that great stuff. And the, but what people always wanted, all my customers were always looking for some way to bring this into a bigger story. Because when you're deploying, when you're building, when you're creating your infrastructure, it's not just one little thing. It's all part of an ecosystem, right? I, I can tell you how many customers at Chef, they were like, okay, cool. So I wanted to do this, but it also needs to register the server and service now and update it over here and add it to the PagerDuty rotation and do this thing. And so we ended up writing a lot of janky bash, you know, to make that work. But if you can have that all happen inside an API, so that's to me. So I think, again, it was a lot of it is saying, okay, how do we apply software engineering tools and practices to infrastructure? 
which sounds an awful lot like DevOps. That's like what we've been talking about for 12 years. So, you know, I, this is why it makes a lot of sense to me. One of the points you made when you were critiquing a uh, uh, chef uh, from back in the day was, well, it was fine as long as you wanted to use Ruby. Well, right. Pulumi doesn't have that restriction. So what languages does Pulumi support? And uh, and I'm curious to know which one is like the most popular. It seems like everything but Ruby, to be honest, uh, which is kind of funny to me. Because I'm like, Ruby's the thing I knew. Uh, no, actually, so we... Oh, geez. I don't even know the number now because one of the big things is we just uh, last week at uh, our, our latest update, we announced uh, support for Java. And the reason why I say I don't know the number is Java unlocks every language that uses the JVM, Kotlin, you know, all, all this stuff. So I, I, I should know the number off the top of my head. I'll give you the broad strokes. So you got JavaScript and TypeScript, Python, Go, all of .NET. So you want to use C Sharp, you want to use F Sharp, you want to use VB. .NET, you know, Java, and then also, and this was a big thing, is also YAML, which is a little potentially controversial because yeah. we've been saying a lot of stuff about this is better <laughs> than YAML, but there's reasons it's really uh, important to have. And I'll talk about that in a minute when you talk about the building blocks of how you would use Pulumi, why YAML matters. Yeah, yeah, YAML we're gonna... is one of those contentious ones where it, it was because <laughs> yes. we're not going to lie. We probably, you know, and maybe not officially, but, you know, there was still finding a lot of stuff in the marketing that's like, oh, where we say this is better than using YAML and now we're using it, but we're not using YAML by itself. So it's I guess the, 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 the little piece I'll, I'll give you into this, this little core idea. One of the powerful things about using a programming language is you can create what we call components, but basically they're libraries. Mm -hmm. And think about this. Let's say you are in your part of your organization, of your company, you're the subject matter expert on Kates, on Kubernetes, right? You're like, when we do Kubernetes, we do all this. And then you've got other people in the organization that are like, all I need is a Kubernetes deployment. And frankly, I only care about two things about that deployment. And there's really 15 different things that a Kubernetes deploy, you know, that point inside of Kubernetes would have. So I can sit in whatever language I write in Go or Python or C Sharp or Java, I write a component which can be consumed by any of the languages Pulumi supports, including YAML. So you can use YAML to sort of construct your building blocks where you're like, okay, look, I just have a couple of things. Now you're going to lose a lot of the power of the programming language like conditionals, loops, abstractions, okay. all this, but you're like, I don't actually care about that. I just want to take the thing that, you know, like that Ned wrote and it, and it gives me two parameters and I just want to put it in here. So like you can do that. You don't have to use YAML for that. You can use any of the languages, but YAML makes that even easier. Right. Thank so you for explaining that, because when you said YAML, I'm like, wait, one of these is not like the others. YAML is a is configuration information, key value pairs, if you will. It's not a programming language. What are you talking about? But I, I, I think I get you now. So, Manny, another question, though, if uh, of all those languages that you mentioned, if I'm not proficient in one of those, is Pulumi, is that a tool I should be looking into? So I think so for a couple of reasons, because there's different ways you would approach Pulumi. One is the, hey, I'm a software engineer that's always already proficient in Go or TypeScript, and I'm just learning cloud. Well, okay, now at least I only have to learn one thing, which is the cloud part of this. I don't have to go learn HCL or some other technology or tool. The other thing, and this is something I've been telling folks since, you know, again, I've been doing Chef for a long time. And I had a lot of folks who like, I don't know Ruby. I don't know how to program. I'm an ops person. 
So two things that I would always say is number one, one of my little uh, tropes when I worked at Chef was I'm the world's worst Rubyist, but I can write some dang good chef code, you know, <laughs> and because, but we used to talk about, you know, a chef we had had actually part of our workshop was called just enough Ruby for chef. And I'm actually working on some similar things with Pulumi. It's just going to take a lot longer because it's just enough X times however many programming languages. But what I'll tell our audience who aren't who don't consider themselves programmers, and I'm one of those people. I alluded to it earlier. I spent two decades working in ops. I still don't consider myself a programmer. I can write some code. But so many things that we do in ops are just like coding. We just have different words for them. Right. We actually yeah. get this stuff, you know, and the level of coding that like the expertise you would have to have in Python, for example, and actually quite a few ops folks already know Python decently. And even if you don't, you can probably figure it out. I don't really like Python a lot. Luckily, everybody else on my team, you know, my other DAs, like they <laughs> pick it up and I'm like, this makes no sense to me, but it's OK. I'll, I'll write it and go. But usually the level of what you're trying to do when you're getting started is just, again, simple loops, conditionals, yeah. passing objects around. This is all stuff we actually know from other tools we use and other ways to approach it. So it seems like a lot, but it's really not. So I, the reason to your point about is it, is it if I don't know that language, if any of the language, is it worth it? I would look at, it also depends upon what you're already doing because there's two different approaches, right? There's one is I'm doing nothing, right? It's, I always say our biggest competitor is do nothing incorporated, right? Like our, we don't have any info code. We just sort of do this, cool. But if you're already like, hey, we have all this Terraform, we have all this stuff, you probably already know where your pain is around that. And it might, it might apply and it might not. Here's the thing too, I, again, I, I will kind of, people are like, should I use Pulumi or Terraform? My answer is yes, <laughs> right? Like, Something. Do do something, you know, and I think that's that's where that matters. But I would would definitely say don't feel that the language barrier, so to speak, haha, is uh, is insurmountable because and and also I'll tell you something. You're an ops person that hasn't done any coding. Adding a little Python to your, you know, the Python arrow in your quiver, not a bad idea, mm. you know. Yeah. And I would say, you know, most of the ops people I've ever met have either done a decent amount of bash scripting or PowerShell scripting or or even batch scripting if we're going back far enough. <laughs> so it's not that they, they're totally unfamiliar with the concept of writing a script. They just haven't gone into that more formal environment of a general purpose programming language. And I think they'll discover it's not that big of a lift once they actually get there. That's certainly been my experience. And the type of coding we're writing is is not that are far off from a PowerShell script or a Bash script or whatnot. Again, we're, we're not, you, yes, you can go to create these components and all these other abstractions and things like that, but that's, uh, you know, it's part of the glide path. Okay. All right. Now, my understanding is that Pulumi itself has an open source version that's free to use. Folks can, can jump in and start getting to learn it. Um, but I assume there's also a paid version because, you know, your company ostensibly <laughs> right, I mean, wants to make money. They got to pay me somehow. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Can you just point out quickly, what's the differentiation there? Yeah. What's included in one versus the other? Absolutely. So fundamentally, it comes down to state. Okay. Which I know we were going to talk about a little bit later, but we'll jump into this. We talked about this somewhat. We talked about... Um, uh, InfraCode being a test repair loop. Okay, well, for that to work, your, your tool, whatever it is, has to know the state of your infrastructure, 
That state has to be stored somewhere. That is the one true problem of InfraCode, right? Everything else is just stressing on that. So with Pulumi, and like you said, so from a product, from a, the Pulumi client, if you will, the, 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 all that stuff is all open source, free, use as much as you want. It's the what we call a backend. So the backend is where your state is stored. So we support a whole bunch of different backends, only one of which, well, I guess two cost you money. So you could store it in an S3 bucket. You could store it in blob storage. You could store it in local storage. That stuff is all free and is missing some features as that's how that goes because it's just a big state file. What we have is we have what we call the Plumi service. And so that is our SaaS, our, you know, basically Plumi is, it's a backend as a service that gets you a lot more features. So, and even that is free. It's definitely free for, it's free for individuals. So if you're just, if it's just you, you're just starting to do some stuff. It's totally cool for you. Then you kind of go into team and enterprise and business critical and just a couple of things. Again, we'll put, I'm, I'm sure we'll drop a link in the show notes to the pricing page. You'll see that you don't need to have me read it all out to you, but it's a couple of things like how many people have access to it, right? RBAC. RBAC is always the thing that you charge for, right? Which is role-based asking, which is sort of say like, okay, so-and-so needs to be able to do this thing. And then you start to add up, you know, like, uh, a lot of it has to do with how many concurrent updates can happen at any particular time. And when you look at our business critical, so our, you know, again, it's it, then you're paying for just a lot of it is, I don't say paying for support, but paying for dedicated support. But for when you're getting started out, go ahead and, and it's, there is, it's not impossible or even I think terribly hard to switch backends. So I always tell people when they're getting started, to just start in our workshops, always use our service because it's the easiest. Some cynics would say that's me trying to trap you into the features and then you don't <laughs> want to leave. But frankly, it's me being lazy because it's just easier and it exists. But even a lot of the stuff that even for people who are listening that might have been looking at Pulumi even a year ago would be like, oh, yeah, I looked at that, but the S3 backend didn't support locking. And so a lot of that's been updated. And we've also made it, we are trying to make it as easy as possible for people to see there are more backends because we've certainly sort of gotten that before where they're like, oh, people just, that's one of the biggest questions I get, to be honest, is, well, I don't want to use your SaaS, which could either be because you don't want to pay us or you have a regulatory reason not to use it. And we're like, we have all these different things. And people are like, I had no idea. And I just happened to notice it's actually on our pricing page now. So <laughs> which said, if you want to use it now, you can use the Pulumi service inside your file. Like you can self-host it, but that is paid. Like you can't. So the Pulumi service itself is not free in any way, except for individuals. But if you're like, hey, I love the Pulumi service, but I have a regulatory reason to have to put it inside my network. Maddie, I want to start getting more specific. So we've been talking yes. conceptually high level. What is Pulumi? Okay, so let's start this way. Walk us through a simple scenario of using Pulumi to deploy infrastructure as code. And this is day two cloud. So maybe, you know, pick AWS or Azure or something and how I'd use Pulumi to stand something up there. Absolutely. So I will even skip over uh, one of my biggest annoyances is what I call the S3 bucket example, which is how do I do a thing to configure an S3 bucket and raise your hand if your entire job you've ever had to just configure an <laughs> S3 bucket and that is all. The reason it's a good example is it's something everybody understands. But if I if I want to think a little bit more about what is applicable, so if I'm let's say I'm going to go ahead and 
maybe maybe what I need to do is deploy a VM. Let's say I want to spin up uh, a machine in EC2, but it's going to be on its own VPC. Okay, let's 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 do it that way because I think that's a good because only having one thing makes us less interesting, mm-hmm. right? And 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 also lets us lose a little bit of the the power of this being a programming language. Okay, so what I'm going to do there, and I, I will I will skim a little fast on certain things. You're not watching me type, and we're going to pretend that I'm going to use TypeScript just as an example, and it only matters because I'm going to use the word TypeScript once. So what I do is I sit down and I say like, okay, I'm going to write Pulumi new TypeScript AWS, and what that does is because a Plumi program is just a whole bunch of files in a directory. And if you want, and this is what you're into, you could go create all those files by yourself, but that sure seems boring. <laughs> so we have a whole bunch of templates off the Plumi new thing that will go and scaffold that. So the reason I bring this up is so the Plumi new TypeScript and then specifically AWS is it's going to go ahead and say like, okay, this is a TypeScript program. So that means I need a package.json. You know, I, I use an index.ts as my entry point. And it kind of builds out all the initial files. If I did Go, it would give me a main.go. If I did a Python, it'd give me a um, what a main.py and a requirements.txt. So it's going to do that for me. So I get started. Cool. And now I'm going to go in there and I'm going to say, okay, I'm going to create a new resource and I'm sort of pseudocoding in audio. But I'm basically going to say, first, I need to create a VPC. Let's say this is dedicated. I know in real life, you probably already have one you're attaching it to, but We'll just do this, right? So I'm going to basically say it's a new VPC and I'm going to give it the various different um, arguments or properties that it might have. And again, there's a lot of stuff that when you're creating a VPC, you need a bunch of other stuff. We'll skip that for a minute. Now I'm going to go ahead and say I'm creating in the next resource that I create, I'm going to define it as, you know, um, in EC2, I'm going to say I'm creating a new machine. Now, one of the things is I tell it what VPC to attach to. Well, guess what? That's a property off of the object I created, which was that first VPC. So I can reference it by, let's say I called it VPC, vpc.name. Boom, I'm passing those things across from each other. So this is the programming language power, right? Is that I'm like, okay, I created a thing over here. I can reference it somewhere else. That's a really simple idea. And then what will, let's say I just do that piece. Then what I would do is I would run a command called Pulumi up. And first it's going to, um, basically just go in it. It does a very quick check of my code. Like if there's any compilation error or syntax, basically syntax errors, it'll flag and say, wait, this is Maddie. You wrote some cruddy JavaScript, you know, fix this line. I can't figure it out. Assuming that it doesn't mean it's going to do what you mean it to do, but at least it will not tripper. It's going to sit and say like, okay, cool. If you run this, it's running a preview. It's going to say, this is what's up. I'm going to Create a stack, which in, in Pulumi version, a stack is an instance of your infrastructure. Mm-hmm. A lot of times they might correspond to dev or QA or prod, but they're really just an implementation. So it's the same Pulumi program, but maybe with different configurations. Okay. It's going to say, I'm going to have to create a stack. I'm going to have to create it. It says, oh, I got to create a VPC because I don't have a VPC like this. And I got to create the, the VM. And then it says, do you want to want to do that? And then I would say, yes. And then it'll go ahead and spin up and do all of its stuff very similar to a lot of other, you know, InfraCode tools where you run them at that point. I can do this inside of a CI CD pipeline if I want, et cetera. Now, what'll happen is after assuming that that runs and everything's fine, if I run Plumi up again, it'll basically say nothing has to change. Yeah, that's the fundamental simple scenario of that. And again, now we talked about, let's say you maybe already have VPCs. So you can do input and output from various stacks. 
So let's say I had a different Pulumi program that configured all my networking in AWS. I can actually slurp that value in from that other stack in my Plumi program that does my EC2, just like that one. I'm not going to, again, that's a lot to explain in mouth words without seeing, <laughs> right. but it's really important to have those input outputs that go between stacks and not only in your program, because that's a lot of times how things work, right? Or I'm going to spin up a Kubernetes cluster in this stack, in my core infra stack, but my deployment just needs to know the info about that, about that Kubernetes cluster. Right, right. And it's slurping that from the state that's being stored. Correct. By Absolutely. Stack. Yes. Okay. Yep, so that, yep. that gets us to state, which you already talked about a little bit. But uh, what what's actually stored in that state data that Pulumi is using? Well, at the end of the day, it's all just JSON, right? So it's all just like it's it's a big JSON blob that's like, here's the the all of the resources and all of the parameters around them. Now, I know we wanted to talk about secrets later, so we'll just put it put a pause in it that there may be information in there that is secret and that is then encrypted in various ways we'll talk about when we get to secrets. But okay. so, but examples, and, and one of the things I will tell you, and this is sort of the cool thing about doing cloud-related things, again, to go back to Chef, I used to get people would always say, how come I can't point Chef at my Apache server and have it spit out a cookbook to build that server? And I'm like, because Chef doesn't know what of the 10, 15,000 files on that server you changed or matter to you or have anything to do with anything. Well, you can do that with Pulumi and your AWS infrastructure because it's all APIs that have defined endpoints that have defined values. So you can actually import that. And, that, and it just is translating that state. So fundamentally, state is a bunch of key value pair that says like, here's the properties of all the resources. And... And then that's maintained historically as well. Gotcha. We pause the podcast for a couple of minutes to introduce sponsor StrongDM's Secure Infrastructure Access Platform. And if those words are meaningless, StrongDM goes like this. You know how managing servers, network gear, cloud VPCs, databases, and so on, it's this horrifying mix of credentials that you saved in PuTTY and in super secure spreadsheets and SSH keys on thumb drives and that one doc in SharePoint you can never remember where it is. It sucks, Right. StrongDM makes all that nasty mess go away. Install the client on your workstation and authenticate. Policy syncs, and you get a list of infrastructure that you can hit. When you fire up a session, the client tunnels to the StrongDM gateway, and the gateway is the middleman. You know, it, it's a proxy architecture. So the client hits the gateway, and the gateway hits the stuff you're trying to manage. But it's not just a simple proxy. It is a secure gateway. The StrongDM admin configures the gateway to control what resources users can access. The gateway also observes the connections and logs who is doing what, database queries and kubectl commands, etc. And that should make all the security folks happy. Life with StrongDM means you can reduce the volume of credentials you are tracking. If you're the human managing everyone's infrastructure access, you get better control over the infrastructure management plane. You can simplify firewall policy. You can centrally revoke someone's access to everything they had access to with just a click. StrongDM invites you to 100% doubt this ad and go sign up for a no BS demo. Do that at strongdm.com slash packetpushers. They suggested we say no BS, and if you review their website, that is kind of their whole attitude. They solve a problem you have, and they want you to demo their solution and prove to yourself it will work. StrongDM.com slash packet pushers and join other companies like Peloton, SoFi, Yext, and Chime. StrongDM.com slash packet pushers. And now, back to the podcast. 
you just mentioned the AWS APIs that you can, uh, you've got endpoints, you can find information that's exactly what you need to know. I think part of that translation magic is happening because Pulumi leverages Terraform providers, if I did my homework right. Uh, that's, a, that's another one where people get tripped up. So we don't leverage Terraform providers. What we do leverage is, uh, so to create a provider, which is something like maybe it's an AWS provider, maybe it's PagerDuty, maybe it's whatever, it's, you need to know the schema right? The schema of what are the CRUD operations that can be done against that provider and what right. are their definitions? As it happens, the wonderful community around Terraform has defined a lot of this already and they are open specs. So right. what you can do is you can, you being us at Pulumi or even you as an individual, if, if we don't have a provider for a thing you want where there is a Terraform provider, you can generate one, but it's just generated off the spec. No Terraform code is actually run. Right. So when you when you go and convert that, so if you look at our PagerDuty provider, for example, that's just taking the API spec, which has been defined in the Terraform provider, but it's all Pulumi code. There's no actual execution of Terraform. Now, that said, you're alluding to something which is really cool. We have a different couple different kinds of providers. Those are we call those bridged providers where we take the spec that comes from a third party like like Terraform and do that. We also have what we call native providers. And those are built from the open API spec of the, of the cloud provider itself. And the, the most mature, as in it's been around the longest, is Azure. So for example, when Azure adds, when they add a new feature to Azure, that is in the Pulumi provider the next day. Wow. Because we build that provider nightly based on the open API on the, on the API spec. Now that requires now, of course, Azure doesn't necessarily publish everything through that spec. <laughs> so things we know about that aren't there, we can put in manually. We have just added the uh, so the GCP one is in preview, the native provider and the AWS one. The the thing with the AWS one is um, so that exists. And it's using the cloud control API, which Amazon themselves have not yet fully fleshed out. So the AWS native provider doesn't have everything. The fun thing is you can mix and match providers. So if you're building on AWS, you absolutely can use what we call AWS classic. Use AWS native for defining the things that are in there because you know that's the future. But if you're like, okay, you know what? This particular service is not in the native one. I can pull it up in that one. So versus like if it's a bridge provider, it takes a little slower to that. But that gives the ability to say, hey, we don't have to go recreate the wheel on all this stuff. This already exists, and especially if you're someone who has written a Terraform provider for your service, say you work at PagerDuty and you own the Terraform provider, you can very easily just make the, you know, Pulumi provider for that. You don't have to because it's already there, but, you know, as an example. <laughs> So, Maddie, on the Pulumi website, there is some phrasing there. It's a cloud engineering platform. And I think you've just highlighted why you, you could go that way. The APIs are there. They're, they're open. They're very well documented. You know everything that you can do with them. So what happens if I'm managing, you know, that icky metal uh, in my <laughs> data center? Can I still use Pulumi, assuming, let's say, the device, like a, a network switch, let's say. Let's say it's got a decent API. Could I use Pulumi? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's really what it comes down to is having an API that you can build the SDK around. So that's why it, Pulumi doesn't work as inside the operating system config management like you would use for Chef or something. So it's always like Ansible is a good answer for it, which, oh my God, I can't believe I just said 
use Ansible, but <laughs> you know, but for example, inside that, so like, or, or chef or puppet or something that's really good at managing inside the OS can be a better together story, right? So you're, you know, when you're bringing up your AMI or whatever, or I like to call it Amy, don't tell Corey Quinn, you know, you can then have part of that. We have what well, we have, what we call as a command provider. So you can actually run commands in your, um, Bloomy program as well against things. So that could work into that could either be maybe you're running, you know, chef client or so in your example of like, Hey, I've got maybe a network switch or something like that. There's ways around it. You know, either it's maybe the command will get you as far as you need to go. Cause maybe you're like, okay, I can get almost all of it with an API, but then there's this one thing that I have to run yeah. as a command, you know, Right. So even if there is no direct provider for that device, there's still a way to continue using Pulumi to manage infrastructure as long as it's not too complicated. Right, right, right. And then you might do that with, again, the same thing. Maybe, you're, maybe you've got a really good Ansible surface for that particular device, but everything else works well in Pulumi. You can connect those things to get that, whether it's that last mile or whatever, you know. So I don't have to have a provider as such to, uh, to, to interact with that the oddball device. Well, you could use the command. Well, you're probably going to wrap, you're going to end up wrapping it into some kind of a component so that it makes sense to you. Because Mm -hmm. again, most of the people who are going to consume this on your end are going to want to be able to pass in just the one parameter to that. But yes, you can kind of bring that command provider as part of, yeah. Right. This would be fun. If you want to mess with this sometime, uh, Ethan, we can, we can, we can, (laughs) you know, do terrible, terrible things. I, uh, my my friend Lee wrote a blog. I'll I'll put the I'll I'll get you the link, and it's I'm gonna misremember the name exactly, but it's like deploying Kubernetes in ridiculous programming languages. But because of actually at under the under the hood because of the YAML provider, because any programming language that can spit out JSON, we can turn into Pulumi at this point. Mm-hmm. And so he wrote a bunch of stuff about spinning up like Kate Kubernetes clusters in Fortran. You know, and stuff like that. So, so there's a lot of inadvisable things you can do, you know, and those are always the most fun, but, you know. Well, how hard is it to actually write a provider? Is that something that really pure developers need to do? It depends, as always. One of the things that's really great is that we are providers. So it's, again, if you're talking about writing like a native provider that's going to go and like be slurping in from the API specs and keep rebuilding it, that's different. That's harder. So the bridge providers are very, very easy, but a component provider, we call it a Pulumi package. These are actually all packages, but the example I was giving where you're going to write a thing that's that's exposed to other folks is actually not that terribly hard. And one of the cool things is you can write it in any of the Pulumi supported languages, but it will generate the SDKs for every language. Mm -hmm. So, which was a new thing in Pulumi 3.0 that was last year, because it used to be that if you wanted, you had to write each of those SDKs by themselves, which meant you'd be like, all right, well, we're a TypeScript shop. Like, that's what I know. But then someone else in your company wants to use your package and they want to do it in Go, they can't. Mm -hmm. Now it's just part of the authoring experience to just generate the SDKs in all the languages. And along those lines, there's stuff where you could even, again, that, that YAML provider actually really helps you with some of this. You can really get there. So it's gotten a lot easier. Uh, I'll be honest with you. I need to spend some time with with that because I haven't even, I work here and I'm like, there was so much <laughs> stuff that just happened and I'm trying to keep up, you know? So I, I know that more in theory, but yeah, I think it's gotten a lot easier. 
And we're continuing to make that experience uh, easier and better because that's the key. Right. Talk to us about secrets management, Maddie, that uh, we alluded yeah. to it earlier, but it's kind <laughs> sure. of an important piece here. They're very important because, you know, one of the thing, you know, secrets happen, right? You might need to pass in an, uh, an API key. You might need to pass in a database password or something. So the first kind of just overall important thing is, yes, Pulumi supports secrets, as in you can um, store secrets in your Pulumi code. Um, by default, it wants to you will use the uh, Pulumi service as its secret provider. Okay. However, you can use, I don't want to say any secret provider, but pretty much anyone that you would likely, well, I shouldn't say this, but yes, you could use Vault, you could use various different ones. You just configure and say that. But the reason where this comes up of how it works is when the secret, when you mark a value, whether it's an input or an output or a config value that you're using, you and your code say, this is a secret. And so that value will never show up in a log. It will never show up in the console. It will always be redacted and it will be encrypted when it's stored in your service backend, but it will also be encrypted if it's in your configuration. So I, I didn't really go into config too much, but remember we talked about stacks. Let's say I've got a dev and a QA and a prod. Okay, and let's say just for example, one of the things that would might be different between all of them is the AWS region. So I would set a config value that says region equals whatever, you know, blah, blah, blah. And then I would set that different for each one. So my Plumi code is basically saying config require. It's saying require a config called region. As it happens, the AWS provider does require this, but you know, you have to set it. But I could also say require DB password. Like, cause again, probably the database password might, or the API key might be different in different stacks, but I'm gonna say require secrets. So someone has to set that in the config file, but it will be encrypted in the config file. So when you look at the config file, you're just gonna see the encrypted value of that and it will be able to be decrypted by the Pulumi service, but you will never be able to see it and it will never show it. You know what I mean? Like when you do the, your Pulumi up, point it's here being, uh, Yeah, if I need to sync all of my Pulumi files to version control, GitHub or whatever, yeah. I, I didn't give anything away. Yeah. I mean, as long as you remember to say they were secrets, we can only do so much, <laughs> right? You know, I mean, right. like... <laughs> okay, now I want to bring things way back to like almost the beginning of our conversation where you said infrastructure <laughs> software, right? Yeah, we're yes. going back in time. All um, right. And, you know, we talked about how there's a lot more to software than just writing the code. And one of those big things, one of the things that you absolutely should be doing is testing your code. Yes. Whatever that means, whether it's unit tests, whether it's uh, regression tests, whatever it's going to be. How does Pulumi test code? So this is one of those beautiful things where it's like the, hey, it's software, man. Like, how do you test TypeScript? How do you test Python? Just test it. Now, and that is that is the short answer is, yeah, hey, use the, the test, especially when you're talking about things like unit tests, right? Um, so you can, and which are arguably, this is my old school InfraCoder hat on, the least important tests because you only want to test them if you're testing something you did. So I'll give, again, an example. Like a lot of times when we write unit tests in our InfraCode, we find ourselves testing that the InfraCode tool itself actually worked, which you don't need to do because we do that for you. So I would always get, again, I'm going to give it a, a chef example because it's the simplest is 
So there is a resource in Chef called Package. So let's say I wanted to install Nginx. So I have I have one line of Chef code that was Package, and then it quotes Nginx. That's that's how you install Nginx in Chef. Mm-hmm. And then someone would write a unit test that would be like, did the package Nginx get installed? Why did I have to test that, right? Now, <laughs> but what if we're talking about Apache where the package name is different depending upon the version or the, you know, the distribution you're using? Then I have introduced some logic. So I need to test that, that if, you know, distro is Ubuntu, was the package name this? So when you think about your unit test, you need to be making sure you are testing your logic, not like, I was like, you don't go and test to make sure that .NET works, right? Yeah. I don't know. You, maybe you do. <laughs> I, I, people have their own things. I'm not here to, you know, make judgments. Now that said, what you basically are testing in your unit test with Plumi are your resource inputs. You're saying like the input that I was giving, which might be, so a lot of times um, you're just sort of saying like, okay, did, did, if whatever I'm passing into it, like, again, the equivalent of, did I pass the right package name? which you would not do in Pulumi, but did I pass like a subnet the way that I would expect to into a network or something like that? Especially if I'm doing some kind of logic versus just reading it from a config value. Why did you need to test that? Mm -hmm. Uh, Then we talk about what we call property tests. So these are resource level assertions like against while the infrastructure is being deployed. So those you actually sort of have to deploy and that, uh, but again, the difference is unit tests are super fast. They're in memory. Everything's, you know, so they take milliseconds. A property test still takes seconds because it doesn't act. It's all mocked. And if you mock it, right, we don't actually, you don't actually deploy your infrastructure. It's mocked out to say like it mocks out the AWS API and says, okay, this is what would happen, right? Mm-hmm. Because we understand that. Then you talk about integration tests, which are where, where you actually deploy some ephemeral infrastructure and then run your external test against that, right? So those take minutes, you know, they take a little or maybe longer depending on what you're spinning up, <laughs> um, but you actually are testing against external endpoints and you really need to kind of do all of them, but you put them at different phases through your, your testing. But yeah, so if you like to, you know, a lot of our examples, you know, you can write unit tests in Python and TypeScript, maybe you're using Mocha as your framework, and we have a lot of really great examples around that because we do it. We have to test all of it, right? So, right. but the beautiful thing is there's no like, with the exception of the integration testing where we actually have good examples around it, there's no like special Pulumi thing. You're testing mm. using your, pro- especially for unit tests, it's just your programming language, man. Right. You know, so. Now, I mean, I'm assuming I'm not doing everything from the ground up here. I don't need to write everything I can leverage the work of others, let's say. I hope so. So is there a special site or a place you can go to find a common implementation of like a VPC or a Kubernetes cluster or something along those lines? So we've got a couple things to look at. So when you're talking about the reference, so we have something called the Pulumiverse, which is relatively new, but I'm really excited about it. So this is 100% community driven, like Mm -hmm. except that Pulumi, we help fund it you know, like we we support it, but we don't run it. And this is the place for the Plumi community to interact. They collaborate, whether they're on libraries, projects, learning resources, all that stuff. So one of one of the big things at the Plumiverse is the awesome list, right? Like we have this, a lot of resources have these, you know, so we have the awesome Plumi. So this is just a curated list of like tons of tutorials, books, tools, all that kind of good stuff. But this is also where people can go in and, 
you know, um, excuse me, uh, like creating providers, you know? So mm. for example, the, the concord, the provider for concourse that got created by that, that's not an official, official Pulumi one, but it had to have somewhere to live because so rather than, so what we encourage people to like for these community created providers and resources, we encourage people to put them under Pulumiverse, which is just a GitHub organization, because first of all, then you don't have to worry about being the only maintainer and such. And they're also, in addition, we have the Pulumi registry, which is available. And that's just, a, that's really just, a, it's where you can find kind of all the packages that we are aware of, that have people have published them to either their, and you'll be able to see if they're quote unquote, Pulumi official or community, which doesn't mean that the community ones are not good. It's just you know, kind of thing where, you know, if you can come and yell at us versus, you know, yell at someone in the community. But I'm really excited about the Pulumiverse. We have a program that we officially announced last week called the Paluminaries, which is kind of our champions program. And the Pulumiverse and the Paluminaries are loosely coupled in that, you know, the governing board of the Pulumiverse, some of those folks came from Paluminaries. But this is very similar if you're familiar with like Vox Populi and the puppet community. This is what we're trying to encourage here. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yeah, I'm really excited about it. I'm excited to see how this continues to grow. And it was it's just been very hard for me to keep my hands off because I want to be <laughs> like, I can contribute to it all day long. But I keep saying like, hey, I work at Bloomy. This is not I mean, I'm part of the community, but we explicitly have a rule that you can't have more than one member of actually there is one member of the governing board of the plumi versus that is a plumi employee which we then have to keep rotating as we keep hiring people so like, you know, makes, I, I would have gone for paluminati that would have been my choice right there uh, that might have gone through yeah you know, some of the you know <laughs> we we have palumni which are you know people who used to work at plumi you know so <laughs> uh, so Maddie, people have been listening to this and now everyone that's listening obviously wants to try Pulumi. So where yeah. would you guide them so they can get started, documentation, uh, whatever? So the first thing I would suggest is if you go to Pulumi.com and it's it's pretty much all over. It's our getting, we have a link that says getting started. And I think you'll put the link, I, I dropped it in the notes here, yeah. but it's Pulumi.com slash doc slash get dash started. And what you'll do there is just sort of sit down and say like, okay, which cloud do I want to do I want to try? Now, if you want to even do it the even simpler way, I would go to palumi.com slash learn. And these are self-guided educational modules that that my team has worked on, specifically Laura Santa Maria on my team has, has written these up and they're amazing. And they aren't super duper complete. Like again, you're gonna look at this, you're gonna be like, oh, why am I doing this in Docker? But it's to get the idea of the concept, right? So you're like, this is how this works. And, and we're continually uh, adding more learn modules. Yeah, if you go to plumi.com slash resources, this also will show when we have upcoming workshops. Our workshops are all based on that learn material as well. So if you like to do a workshop, a virtual workshop where you're like, cool, Maddie or Kat or Laura or, or Rockcode are gonna be like doing this along and I can follow along. Those are great too. We are starting to experiment with trying to get out for in-person workshops. Uh, again, look at that resources place. And I also really like um, Pulumi.tv will take you to our YouTube channel that's very active. In addition to, you know, you'll see the usual kind of like announcement stuff, but there's two series on, uh, actually technically three series I would pay attention to on Pulumi TV. One is called Modern Infrastructure. We used to call it Modern Infrastructure Wednesdays, but 
it was easier to not have to have it always be a Wednesday. So that's David <laughs> Flanagan. Uh, we'll do a lot of deep dives into doing some cool stuff. Laura Santa Maria does a series called Quick Bites of Cloud Engineering that are just kind of short videos around ideas like there's one about what is state? What do we mean by state? What do we mean by cloud engineering? And I run our um, weekly live stream called PalumaVision, which uh, you can, if you like Twitch, you go to twitch.tv slash Palumi. It's also live streamed on our YouTube channel. And uh, so again, there's lots and lots of different fun ways to <laughs> no, no it lack up. of information. No, no. And if anybody <laughs> ever has, if you ever, as you're trying to get started, you know, our community Slack is awesome for that. But if, if you ever have any questions, you're trying to figure stuff out, you know, my job is to help people get going, you know, so you can always find me on Twitter. Uh, I'm at Matt Stratton on Twitter and um, find me in our community Slack, uh, which is uh, slack.bloomy.com. And yeah, I just, uh, this is what I love to do. Great stuff, Manny. Thank you for taking time with us here at Day 2 Cloud, man. Uh, we, we tried to record this a while ago and you had a, had a power outage of all things. And, oh, uh, I, yeah, yeah. It was, oh boy, did that turn out to be expensive. We'll just put it that way. Uh, I was, I'll put it this way. While we were sitting and recording, you know, my, my doorbell camera went off and it was the electrician coming to pick up the check that I left for him. And I could just feel it coming out of my bank account as he walked away, you know, but, but everything's safe now. That was the important thing. It was a safety thing. My house will hopefully not burn down now. So. Well, thanks again, Maddie, for appearing on Day 2 Cloud today. And if you're still listening, virtual high fives to you out there for tuning in. You're awesome. <laughs> and if you have suggestions for future shows, hit us up on Twitter at Day 2 Cloud Show or go up to Ned's fancy website, nedinthecloud.com, if you're not a Twitter kind of person. Now, did you know that you don't have to scream into the technology void alone? The Packet Pushers Podcast Network has a free Slack group open to Everyone, visit packetpushers.net slash Slack and join. It is a marketing-free zone for engineers to chat, compare notes, tell war stories, and solve problems together. Again, packetpushers.net slash Slack. And until then, just remember, cloud is what happens while IT is making other plans.